HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by New York Mutual Trading. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sting upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space. A product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other founders can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Don Teco from Relish Food Project. Relish helps growing brands like Capello's and Collie Power and mine and many others, with all the financial pieces of the business, from bookkeeping and accounting to supporting you as you raise capital. Um, hi, Don. Yay. I'm so glad you're here. I have so many questions, and actually there are a lot of other founders that have been reaching out to me that have a lot of questions too. And I think the thing about money questions is that somehow we feel a little sillier asking them, or they make us a little more uncomfortable. So I'm really excited. Cool. I'm happy to be here. Great. Um, so what I like to do a little bit is trace, you know, your career back to your childhood. Um, so I guess I have two questions for you. One, were you always a math person? And two, were you always a food person? Well, I was always a math person, even though... Um, after starting college as an engineering student, I graduated with a BA in history. Yeah. Um, but I always knew I would end up at business school because my brain was wired that way. And that was all the questions I asked myself and the world were through some sort of lens of how does that work and why. Um, awesome. So I did. I um, After I moved to New York and I worked various jobs, doing various things. Um, I ended up back at business school at Columbia mm -hmm. and um, I ate lots of terrible <laughs> food at the time. So when you were like, did you want to have a business or did you, did you think you wanted to be an engineer when you were little? Did you, even, how did you even know what an engineer did? My dad was an engineer. Oh, that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah. your brain just worked in like 
logic. Yeah, like figure yeah. it out. And so, so math cool. was great and operational stuff was great. And I still like I'm always analyzing everything on an operational math basis. But um, yeah, so I went to business school thinking I would do nonprofit management and I was kind of opened up to the world of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. in general and really excited about it. And in that time, I also met Noah Wabesnader, who founded, went on to found Peeled Snacks. Mm-hmm. And then even later than that, ended up hiring me. Ah. Um, and again, at the time, I really had no, I didn't know anything about the food industry. Um, and she knew a lot because she had worked at Unilever and then started a natural food company. Right. And you can imagine that what she learned at Unilever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you learn a lot of you, the really important things to learn. You know, I mean, I think that's where a lot of people seem to start off. They, yeah. You know, learning it as from the ground up is is almost like you learn it kind of weirdly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you also learn what's in, you know, what is food? What is right. big food? Yes. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so she hired me and I was a very small company and I got to do a little of everything and I loved it and I loved being part of something small and really having day-to-day impact in the work that I did and that was really meaningful and I did operations and finance for years mm-hmm. um, and I met my co-founder for Relish Food Project, Cassie Abrams there mm-hmm. and we became friends and um, and knew that we'd make great business colleagues and eventually went on to found Relish. So. And can we go back mm-hmm. to college for a second? Because you and I put together that we are both 94 at Duke. 95. Okay. 94, 95. Yes. I, you were 95. I was 94. Because I was going to say, because I failed <laughs> Econ 101 <laughs> freshman year first semester. And I was going to ask if you were in my class. Oh. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, in the engineering school, we didn't take Econ. We oh, took differential equations, which also was... <laughs> You know, I just want to say to anyone out there who cares, I feel like I could have liked math. I could have, I, I could have, if, if someone had been like, here's what a budget is, here's what a PL is, here's what a balance sheet is. This is how to manage your life. Yeah. And if you ever want to have, you know, you might be making money, but if you don't know your cash flow, you might not be able to pay rent. Like, does how do people learn that stuff? You know, like I have a senior in high school right now. She's taking some log class. I don't know. It's algebra something. It's it's like, she will never, you know, she's like, I'm never going to use this in real life. I'm like, you know what? You're right. You're never going to use that in real life. I want you to learn how to balance a, a, checkbook. a checkbook. Yeah. Can you just solve that? Um, I can't, but I'll say like as an entrepreneur, like it's your responsibility. Like if you aren't comfortable with some aspect of your business, like you have to learn it. Like you don't, right. you don't get the excuse of like, I wasn't good at math no. or I wasn't good at marketing right. or I don't understand creative Safety. design or whatever. <laughs> like you, if you don't have it, find someone who can, right. who can sort of be an expert, but you yourself, you have to commit to figuring it out. And I mean, yeah. business math is not... It's not calculus. So right. it's it takes work. And I'll say, I'll just say I had like one of my like favorite moments in my job has ever been is like going through and explaining working capital to somebody yeah. and having them have an aha moment. You're going to do like, that now. Now I under, because like people call us and maybe I'm off topic now, but people call us and say, how much money do I need? Right. And then I say it based on a lot of different assumptions. Right. And here's, here's the big factors, you know. Um, oh, this is what we're going to, so. let's just dive right in. <laughs> no, because, you know, normally we do like your childhood and Sorry. la 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 And <laughs> honestly, like, <laughs> great childhood. it was great. It was fine. You were fine. You're okay. It was fine. Good. It was and, fine. And, I didn't yeah. really, I ate, yeah, I didn't eat well. I great. moved into natural foods when I, Perfect. when I started peeled snacks and I, haven't looked back. Awesome. So now let's, let's talk about some real terms because I think that, um, I think what you just said was actually really important because it is our job to learn it. You know, a lot of people found food companies and other companies because they have a passion or they see a need, you know, and we don't, well, I think a lot of us who start that way pride ourselves on the fact that we're not like, hedge fund dudes that decide that we need to make a keto bar because, you know, la la la. Like, you know, we pride ourselves on actually being creative in some sense and like loving food that sometimes doesn't go exactly with like understanding all the money Mm -hmm. stuff. So let's just go through some terms. Well, before that, I want to hear what were the things that you said to this person who called you when he was like, how much money do I need to start a food business? 
Yeah. I mean, we were a little farther along than that, but it was right. still, um, you know, most people, no matter their math skills, can do a quick budget. You know, this is what I'm going to pay myself. This is going to pay someone else. Yeah, you're not going to pay yourself anything right. for okay. a little while. Well, ha-ha. FYI. Zero. Right. So that yeah. one's easy to add <laughs> <Right>. in. But <laughs> um, this is what, you know, my Google Mail costs me every month. Like, you can figure that out mm-hmm. looking at your credit card statement, whatever. What they can't figure out is when am I going to sell the product? When am I going to get paid for the product? How much, you know, sometimes how much is that product going to cost? You know, like thinking through, it's a little more complicated. Like I have to buy this packaging, 90, you know, and I got to buy it from China. So I'm Mm -hmm. paying, you know, now and I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to get it and then I'm not going to use it. You know, so how much of my cash is tied up in all of that? And that's like the piece that we, I was working with this particular person on. And um, so can we use, can we use us as an example? Mm -hmm. So top at the top are the things that you are spending on, Mm -hmm. right? So you have your cost of goods, which includes your ingredients and your packaging. Mm -hmm. And then you have warehousing, Mm -hmm. freight. Yep. And do you include trade spend in that or no? Or just the cost of making the ingredient and getting the ingredient on the shelf. Yeah, that's a cash expense. So the trade spend is more of a, like, you don't get it. Like, eventually, when after you've sold for, you know, $10, you're really only getting $8 of that back because right. of trade spend deductions. Um, so I would just look at that differently. I mean, we'd budget for it, obviously. Right. But is, a, is that what people should be including mm-hmm. on what they're spending? Yeah. And then you have, you, that's basically your product margin, mm-hmm. yep. right? And then you have how much it's going to cost once you've made the product and it's at the warehouse for it to actually sell through on a shelf, yep. which includes when we talk about trade spend, everyone, you know, you assume that because people love you and they've either loved you at the farmer's market or they love you on Instagram, you're never going to have to pay slotting fees. Stores are going to be begging you to put your product on the shelf. You don't need to pay field marketing to get people to try it because everyone's just going to be flocking to your product. And all of that is inaccurate, right? So, so you budget to do promotions Mm -hmm. and you budget for, um, the circular or whatever it is yeah. that the, and that's about 20%, right? Yeah. I think say? 20% is a good, um, it's a good base. If you're like a salty snack and uh, you know, I would go higher, but for, for your sauces, 20%. Right. So you would spend more than 20% if you were a salty snack cause it's so competitive Yeah, and you just need to be on promo all the time, all the time, right. big case decks off shelf, big movement. But you know, it's like, it's that thing where you have a, you know, bigger promotions, but more product. Is right. Moving, and it's flying you know, faster. It's not, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that, I guess that depends on. So there's a little bit category right. specific, but right. I mean, 20% in right. the refrigerator case or freezer right. somewhere generally that's. that's and one thing I, I think I've talked about a lot on this podcast that I did not do when I, when I first started the sauce and I would advise people to do before they start a food company is understand the category that you are going to be playing in. So you should know what the standards are Mm -hmm. for refrigerated beverages or for ice cream or for salty snacks, because you not only do you need to know like who your buyer is and where it's going on the shelf, but what the market size is and how, what is the average, you know, units per skew per week that sells. That's a huge, I mean, you can't do forecasting unless you at least have some sense of what that's going to be, because if you think it's a hundred units a week and it's five, you're way off. (laughs) And the thing is, I, I, anyone who's listening, your product is amazing. I'm sure. But you know, if the average is like, if you have a chip and chips sell on average five units per week, your chip as amazing as it is, is not going to sell a hundred. It's just no, not. No, it's probably not going to sell five if five is normal right. because nobody knows about you. And it's just hard. It's really hard because I know it's... It's yours. A, it's yours and, and, it's and you amazing. love it so much. Best chip ever. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, be realistic. I mean, my guess is that most people, most founders, we probably overestimate our sales and underestimate our costs. Yeah. Pretty yeah. frequently. Definitely. So, okay, going back. So then your gross margin... Mm-hmm is, you know, when people say like, what are the margins on the business? Yep. A, how 
you know, just simply, would you calculate that if you're a new, if you're a new business, but also what should you sort of expect them to be at the beginning? Sure. So product margin, which is your cost divided by your revenue, the part, you know, what you sell that item for, um, that, you know, starting out can be really low. Um, but I think the thing for me is if I'm talking to someone or I'm talking to you, I would say, I don't care what it is today in the beginning, Mm -hmm. these six months, these first 12 months, whatever it is, I need you to prove to me that you can get into the forties. Right. Um, If you can't get into the forties, then your business is just, it's going to be really, really hard to make that work because there's not much going to come to the bottom line. Right. Um, But then gross margin is, you know. Oh, you want the product margin to be in the forties? Yeah. Oh, wow. At least. Yeah, because I was thinking like I mean, high 50s. High 50s would be right. even better. So again, But everyone, a lot of times what happens, right. I mean, what I find happens is you have a great product, you're in a natural foods or specialty foods, so you're using really, really premium ingredients mm-hmm. or well-sourced ingredients or some combination of those, all of those things, certified organic or fair trade, um, pasture raised, et cetera, all, and, but you still want to have a competitive price point. Right. It, it does end up shrinking that margin a little, you know, into that, into that realm. Again, if the more that you see the path to better and better margin, the better off you are. Right. Um, and don't count. I think, I think this is the thing people count on sales to improve the margin. Right. But sales don't improve the margin. No. I mean, that's that's something so fundamental <laughs> that I feel like people have amazing sales, but the margins on their businesses still aren't good. Right. And so what ends up happening is you get into this cycle that I've been hearing about a lot where, you know, you're selling a lot and everyone wants you and that's amazing except that you can't afford to sell that much because the margin on the product itself it puts you in a position where you're continually having to sort of bring in outside money. Yes. And that's a nightmare. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. That's, that's not a good place to be in. So going back, so you're starting off and you realize, okay, I'm selling this and it's not to the consumer. You're talking about your selling price to the distributor, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So you have a product, you sell it to the distributor for $2 your all-in costs should be a dollar, dollar fifteen max. Max, yeah, right. So if you're if you're basic if you're spending more than a dollar fifteen on something that you're selling for two dollars, you should not be doing this business. <laughs> you should raise your price. <laughs> raise your price, or you should know that that one fifty that you're paying now is going to be one fifteen three months from now. You know, if you can get a little bit more volume, so you're gonna. You're going to spend, you're basically spending your own money to get that volume so that you can bring the cost right. down because you could buy the minimum quantity of your packaging. Right. I mean, the places where you save money initially are packaging runs right. where, you know, if you're doing some sort of standard Our pouches went yeah. from like 48 cents a pouch to 19 just exactly. because of the amount that we are now ordering. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll probably, they can go down go further down and more. further, but they're never going to go to zero. So like when you're estimating like your cog savings, at some point you hit kind of like, now I'm doing the, you know, the best quantity, you right. know, and maybe I can save a little bit on shipping and that's going to be the sort of bottom line for that packaging. Right. So Another reason why you do want to look at category going back to that $1.15 is like if you're in a category and, and, you know, you say either you need to raise your price or you need to lower your costs. If you have a chip that's $8 to everyone else's $1, it's not going to work, no matter how good the chip is. And I think that's what people, you know, I remember this feeling. I remember being like, well, we'll figure it out. It's really good. People will really want it. And that's true. But I think part of why I feel so compelled to like be talking about this and doing this podcast is like preventing any of those mistakes that you can make early on and really you know, trying to get it right before you go out there and, and let's say, and make a great product that people love, but that is too expensive to keep producing. That's a bad scenario. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you my strategy when I talk to people about pricing is that you should do it. You want to calculate it two ways, right? So you have the price you will, you really want that, that SRP in the market to be Four dollars. So on the so shelf then, at four. Right, well, on the four, shelf for it. So you're going to subtract out a distributor retailer margin, and you're going to st- subtract out a distributor margin, and then you're going to get to what you can 
charge the distributor. So let's just back into that a little bit. Like, is a normal retail margin like a 35, 30, yeah. 40 percent? Could be 35 to 45, depending, again, like on category and store. Okay. Um, and then a distributor margin, you know, and that's another one, like, when you, if you don't know, then ask. Ask everyone you know. Ask the distributor. Um, you know, it could be as high as 25, it could be as low as eight, you know, it's, it really depends on who, what, you know, (laughs) where you're going, what, you know, um, so use, you know, you're going to use some sort of an average, like use 15 to 20% for a distributor and 40%, you know, start at 40% for a retailer and back into, well, what would you get to sell your product to that distributor at and figure out what your margin would be. So can we do a little, can we do it based on like, let's say a $10 product just so the numbers are round. So you want it to be on the shelf, this magical quinoa, ketogenic, collagen, energy bite bar drink, and you want it to be on the shelf for $10. So you have to figure out, so how do we back into what you can charge your distributor? Yeah. Uh, you do some math. <laughs> I love that you have your, I'm like your pulling calculator. Up a, uh, pulling yeah. up a calculator. Um, and now I'm trying to find, I have a great, I actually have a great worksheet, which stuff. I would be willing to share. Um, oh, that'd that's be really great. easy to use. Um, DM me y'all. Yeah, I will. I'll share it. I, you know, I, I believe in this stuff. So, um, you know, so you're going to, like, let's just say that, you know, you calculate that, you know, it, so it's $10, let's just say. Um, Which, by the way, is very high. So yeah, no yeah, one yeah, make yeah. a product that's $10. <laughs> if the retailer margin is 40%, then um, the distributor is going to sell it to the retailer at $6. Right. Okay. If the distributor's um, uh, markup is is 20%, then, you know, you're selling it to the distributor at 480. Don't okay. check my math on this. I'm just running off of a quick spreadsheet, which right. I haven't had a chance to. Um, so if your cost is more than 480, that SRP isn't going to work, right? right. Um, if your cost is much less, then maybe you can do something better. So that gives you one piece of information. And then the other way I like to do it is to say, like, let's start at your cost. So let's say your cost was $4, mm-hmm. which would not give you a great margin. No. Um, let's say your cost was three fifty. Right. Right. So, you know, now your margin, you know, you're starting out at 27%. That's not so bad. Um, so if it costs you three fifty to make a single unit right. of this, or of this or energy whatever, yeah. bite, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, a single unit, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then it is, a, it's a single unit. Isn't yes, it? yes, right. single unit. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, no, just because yeah. I got confused. Yeah, so, so then that's giving you like 27% margin, which is not good. We just right. said we wanted to be 40, right? Um, so, you know, so can you make it for less? I right. don't know. Then you do it the other way. So that's kind of like top down. That's like ideally that's where you want it to be on the shelf. So you back into what the price should be. Right. And wow. then you say, okay, well, it actually cost me $3.50 to make, and I want to make a 40% margin. Right. But then I have to add my distributor and my retailer. And now what's my new, what's the SRP if right. I do it that way? And maybe that turns out to be 40 1499 instead of 10. And that, and then you look at it and you're like, well, I cannot have this on the shelf for 1499. Right. Or maybe you can. I mean, again, it depends on what the product is. You know, it depends on what the product is. It's hard. You know, if you go above sort of an average price in your category, you're going to have a hard sell into the buyer. You know, I'm not a sales expert, but you know, it seems that, you know, that's a big thing at the same time, you you know, you just need to, um, you need to be realistic somewhere in the middle. So I think building it top down and bottoms up really gives you a sense of where what your where, costs you, need to be, what yeah. you can charge for it, and if it's viable. Yeah, exactly. Okay, assuming it's viable, we're going to take a break and then we'll talk about what you do with your new viable product. <laughs> cool. This episode is brought to you by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. Mutual Trading is the Japanese food authority, true to the heart in upholding genuine Japanese food traditions, and progressive in exploring new ways to provide innovative restaurant supplies and services. They import, export, distribute, and manufacture the top brands for retailer and food service customers nationwide. Learn more at nymtc.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. 
Together, we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, I'm back with Don Teco from Relish Food Project, and I call you an outsourced CFO. Is that an accurate term? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We do. You're my outsourced yeah, CFO. Exactly, exactly. The firm does everything um, soup to nuts, so bookkeeping through right. CFO services. So let's let's talk a little bit about that too, because the bookkeeping is basically making sure that you are getting paid and that you are paying. Yes. That's how I think of accounts receivable and accounts payable. Yeah, exactly. There's also cash flow in there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about cash flow? Sure. Where do you want to start? Uh, just <laughs> what it is. Um, <laughs> sure. So, I mean, the difference between, um, you know, figuring out, I guess, when money will come in and when money needs to go out is how right. we, you know, kind of is what we want to look at. So we do that, you know, with, with, brands using um, budget and projections to look forward and say, okay, if you if you do what you think you're going to do, or let's do some scenarios around what you think you're going to do. Right. Um, and we make some assumptions about how long it takes to get paid and how long you can stretch out your vendors right. um, in terms of terms. And then we come to, you know, a situation where we figure out what, um, what cash you have left in the bank. Um, so I like to do lots of very conservative scenarios where let's say you don't get paid for 45 days from that, from right. any of your, you know, and but you have to pay all your suppliers in 15 days. Like, what does that look like? And then, you know, you can play it out from there. So is there um, a standard for, I mean, I know one of the pieces of advice, it was actually like episode two and it was Derek, who's the operations guy at Bonza. One of his big things was like, just get, the best possible terms, like pay as late as you can. Mm -hmm. Just pay your, the people that you are buying, fill in the blank from your chickpeas, your wood, your packaging, whatever it is, try to get to pay them in 90 days, which by the way, doesn't happen for a small company right. because they don't trust that you're going to be alive in 90 days. So right. they don't give you those terms. Right. But on one hand, when you're paying, you try to get it as late, mm -hmm. as far yes. away as possible. <laughs> but when you're getting paid, do we have any control over that as young companies? Um, like I mean... I think the situation or there's a couple of things that you can do to make sure it goes as best as possible. Okay. One, you can make sure you have a really good invoicing process. Right. So we find that a lot of times we, um, you know, when we get in there, we find out people's like, well, I never got paid. I'm like, they never got the invoice, ah, you know, so you didn't get sent or you have the wrong email address or you sent it to the buyer and right. it needs to go to AP, something like that. So right. those kinds of just like really Clean basic, up. you know, stuff that's, mm -hmm. um, that can be, that can be big. Um, cause no, cause I mean, just understand if they're, if it's a big company and they have terms and they say net 30, it's net 30 from when they get the invoice. It's not net 30 from when you dated the invoice. Interesting. So if you never got it to them, I mean, they're usually, sometimes people will be nicer. Right. Um, get all the contact, you know, when you're setting up a new account distributor or big retailer direct, um, account, whatever, make sure you get contact information for their payables department because calling and squeaky wheel, mm -hmm. that's the same reason that you pay people right. <laughs> uh, when you don't want to, it's the same reason that they'll, you know, they'll right. do it too. Um, make sure that, you know, you stay on top of it. You know, you don't let it go. Once it hits past due, like you need to be on it all the time. It is amazing if there's, especially if you do small, if you do like small wholesale accounts, mm -hmm. like those people never, I mean, there's a lot of past due stuff there right. and small amounts add up quickly. So if you're a person doing wholesales, you know, you have to be on top of that as well. We use this like late fee manager. It's like, you know, cheap little service. You don't even have to do anything. You know, you turn right. it on and it like, it sends them emails and Great. reminds them and right. um, you can charge people extra if they're paid late. They're late. Um, for the big distributors, it's really about like making sure you stay on top of it. You contact them, you find out what's going on. You just don't let it go. Right. Um, and then... You know, the biggest problem as you get bigger is if you're in the red with a distributor and then you get back out of the red, like getting the payments going again seems to be a place where I don't know how to describe it, but it tends to take longer than it should. 
Okay. I so, feel like with our clients right. who are getting paid all the time, it it doesn't that doesn't happen right. um, too often where like where they don't get paid and then if once they go once it stops it's somehow like hard to get trying back trying to on get track. back onto a, a good rhythm. So So that's the getting paid part. Mm-hmm. What about the paying part? So I think with vendors, it's, you know, it's a little bit about entrepreneurs' personalities Mm -hmm. and negotiating skills and charm. Um, It's a little bit about the brand and how you can convince them that you are going to be this amazing partner for the long term. So it's better for them to give you 90 days instead of 60 days because they're essentially going to be a part of this amazing growth and you're going to be feeding them more business as you go. Yeah. And I think, you know, they're going to say no the first time you ask and probably the second time you ask, but depending on your financial situation and the company, what the company looks like, you, you know, if you're willing to work and think creatively with them and mm-hmm. don't stop, don't just take no for an answer. Right. Um, how about 20% upfront and 80% at, at time of delivery. And then, and right. then if I do that and that works, how about the next time it's 20% upfront and, 10%, you know, on delivery right. and then 30, you know, whatever, I can't remember right. the numbers I just said, but then, then the rest in 30 days and like try to stretch the terms yep. out, but be creative and just, you know, um, I think trying. the more that you can talk financial with them, the better off you are. Like yep. just keep suggesting things and, you know, see if they'll say yes to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that brings up another point too. Like everything is negotiable. They mm-hmm. do expect you to negotiate. So if they say, your chia seeds are, you know, $10 a pound or whatever. That's not the end. Exactly. Right? I mean, yep. we didn't know that for a little while. We're like, oh, okay, great. Right. $10. Thank you. You know, we would probably pay 12 because that's who I am. I'm like, are you sure? Because <laughs> they want the really good really ones. Good. <laughs> um, but no, you can actually say, I'm, you know, I'm comfortable paying this and they can, they'll negotiate with you. And of course, as you buy more and more and you're a steady business for them, they'll give you better numbers, ideally. Yep. Yeah. So a question that keeps coming up. So, you know, even if you're not an ice cream company or a soup company, you are seasonal, right? Yes. You might not be as seasonal as that type of thing, but we all have high, you know, periods of high velocities and periods of lower. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, we can sort of track it, it's going to take, unless you are ice cream and you know that you're just not going to sell as much in winter as much as people love your ice cream. Um, how do you plan for, for like making a lot of money in a couple months or making more money in a couple months, but then having to spend consistently? Can you plan around, you know, the, the, the gap Kind of, do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, it it comes back to you know making a projection that you think makes sense, both sales wise and expense wise, and then you know what's probably going to happen is you're going to see that you have, you have cash available in those good months, and then mm-hmm. you're going to see it. You know, if you're running out the cash flow, you're going to see the negative hit um, in those down or down months. So you either have to hold the you know you're gonna have to hold cash or you're gonna have to say well what 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 can we cut during those down months right um, I mean if you're small and growing sometimes you mitigate the 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 pain of the you know of the existing stores decreasing by adding new stores right so there's a lot of that and I mean I'll just say you know that's another thing to just make sure that you know you are making good assumptions around or making the best assumptions that you can and not just assuming everything's going to be amazing, be rosy yeah. and everyone's always going to take your product, you know, understanding those like cycles of when people take the products in. So if you're, um, you know, if I guess if your down season is the holidays, don't expect anyone to take your product in December. I mean, that's, right. a, that's a time that no salesperson would ever tell you you're going to get a fill order in December. Right. And <laughs> so, then yeah. going back to, you know, this how often, so presumably, I mean, not everyone has a bookkeeper to begin mm-hmm. with, and certainly not everyone has an outsourced CFO. And I feel like you're sort of the step, I, I can't afford to have like a full-on finance team member forever in my in my company. So you are sort of this, this step in between, which I think you feel for probably several companies, mm-hmm. right? Um, but people that are even earlier than me, what can they do on their own that, you know, sh- how often should they be looking at cash? Like how, oh, you know, yeah. cause we look at P and L a lot, but we mm-hmm. de- don't necessarily look at cash flow 
as often or the balance sheet. So can you sort of um, say like, what are the bare monthly bare monthly, minimum? If bare you have minimum. no cash, probably you're looking at it every week, but it's hard. Then you're just looking at what can I pay this week? If you can look bigger picture out longer, um, that's, you know, we do it. I mean, most of the time we do it monthly. We look at after we, you know, close books, then we look at where's your cash position at the end of the month and what's the budget and projection look like now that we've actualized up until this moment in time. Right. So, um, you know, I know that building a cash flow is complicated, um, but I would say, you know, do the best that you can um, with what you have on the bookkeeping side. You know, you will have to get your taxes done every year, right. even if you're not making any right. money. So you need something. I mean, QuickBooks is cheap um, and it's pretty straightforward. There are other even easier accounting systems that, you know, I wouldn't use necessarily for my business, but right. I don't think are bad for starting entrepreneurs like Zero and Wave. And I think Wave is Wave. I think that's what it's called. It's like okay. free even. Um, but at least you are sending invoices out. Um, and then collecting the money, keeping track of who paid you is way more ex- important than anything else. The right. expense side of things, again, it's super easy. Like you probably paid for everything on a credit card yep. or with your checking account. And yep. hopefully you used your business credit card. Right. <laughs> but if not, uh, keep track of it. You, right. And at the end of the year, you can download every transaction from a credit card or a bank statement and you can mark it as business or personal or whatever it has right. to do. All of that is like not not impossible. It's, you know, what we do with our account, right? Where we throw the box of receipts at them and say, like, figure out my tax. Right. Right. Don't do that. I don't do that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But keep track of what you sent to people, what they owe you, make sure you invoice them. And then when they pay you, mark it paid in your account, you know, somewhere on an Excel sheet or something so that you know what people owe you. Because you'd rather, you know, you need to be collecting on. Is that one of the things that when people do bring, I mean, I know we had some cleaning up to do when Mm -hmm. when you came. Fortunately, we didn't have as much cleaning up to do as we would have. But so what do you, what are the, what are the big things that once someone brings you in, you end up kind of tidying up so that we can try to prevent that from having. Sure. Happen? I mean, we tidy up, um, a lot on receivables. So you sent the, you know, whatever you, you got a order, you, you got paid for it. They deducted $150. You didn't do anything with that. You just said, oh, we got less $150. So now right. we have this accounts receivable report that I give you. And then it shows that they still owe you $150, but right. they don't actually. Right. Um, you just, you know, you didn't know how to mark Account it off. I mean, I'm not deduction. saying you. Yeah, no, but, I, you did, know, I didn't. But it but seems yeah. like, I mean, that one's really common. So that one we clean up. There's not much. Um, at the end of the day, that one's not that bad. I mean, right. Like, um, Bills that you got. This happens a lot with like startups where like they had elite, they have like legal fees uh-huh. or, you know, they, you know, they got those like, you know, six months ago and then they hire someone and then they don't tell you that they had these bills. And right. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, by the way, my lawyer wants the 20 grand that I, <laughs> I mean, like, I don't show that anywhere. Right. So, um, you know, like keeping track of those right. kinds of things and making sure they pass the information on. Um, you know, a lot of it is comp- more complicated accounting. It's like the cost of goods and inventory management side of things. Um, I'd say like, you know, 50% of the people we bring on don't fully, and, and it's not their fault. They don't no. fully understand yeah. accounting for cost of goods and inventory right. and the differences. And so we that's like a place that we would help. But it's not the end of the day. If you kind of know what you're, if, as long as you're keeping track it's of it tracking. somewhere. Yep you know, somebody can come in and fix, you know, right. get it, get it cleaned up after, you know, after you get going. So not to, not to sell our services. I, now a little, no, I mean, your services are critical, but in like getting a little big picture. So, because we were talking at the beginning, like you do everything from accounts receivable, accounts payable, bookkeeping all the way through helping like a CFO would helping a company, fundraise, not necessarily like bringing in funders, but helping us get our ducks in a row Mm -hmm. for the diligence that will happen inevitably when an investor is thinking of investing. And so that's sort of the big picture finance piece. Um, And I, I get questions about that too. So, I mean, we were joking, please don't say the depressing number, but how, what, what average, how long do you think it takes a CPG food startup to become profitable? So, okay. Um, the rule of thumb that I tell people mm-hmm. is eight to 10 million in revenue, okay. depending on your Margins. margin and your trade spend. It could be 12 to 15 if you have a really 
bad, more margins. bad margins. But it could be five if you have really good margins. Yes. Ish. If you have really good margins and you Matt's have low smiling. why and, are you laughing? Because, because I can hear the hope in your voice. You're like, but it can be shorter. Yes. I, I like that I get to see his facial expressions as we're having these conversations. He made such a funny face just then. But I mean, that's why the margins are really important. Yes. Right? A thousand like, percent. Yes. If you have 40 to 50 percent gross margins on your business, you're going to be profitable sooner. Yes. Right. And I will say that, the you know, so you get the margin and then it's all about your expenses, right, to make it profitable. So what. So, again, this is so based on the entrepreneur and the company and a little bit on like their advisory board or board and what they want to see. But you have some people who, you know, who like to spend money. Right. um, And there are some people who are super lean and mean. And and there's not necessarily a right way or a wrong way to be. It just it really is really personality and brand dependent because there are some people who just can't work without this person and that person and that person and there are other people who are like I have this one guy and he does everything (laughs) but the other thing to know is that if you are at bare minimum not going to be profitable until let's say six million right Mm -hmm. I mean it could be earlier but it's unlikely yeah I'm hoping it's earlier (laughs) I am mad Let's say five million. Okay, just for okay, to make it even <laughs> exactly. I'll run some numbers um, later. If you know that, and you're at a hundred thousand in sales, you have to figure out how many years that's going to be yep. till you get there, and then you have to know that you are not going to be making money until you get there. Right. Which basically means that either you fund it yourself, mm-hmm. right? Because the product will not be funding itself. It, nope. The money has to come from somewhere. Yep. So it's either going to come from you, friends and family, if you can, which I don't think you can, get a small business loan because they don't do that. I mean, I've never. Right. I mean, you'd securitize it on some asset that you already have, which you probably could get a better rate on by doing some, you know, there might be some other way to finance that. Or raising money. Yes. Right. From the outside world. Yep. Um, Now, when you raise money from the outside world, what do what are the critical things that most outside world people, not your parents or your, sure. you know, mm-hmm. will want to know when they're looking at your business that you should have memorized that you can say this is this this is this this is this. Yep, um, sales last year's sales projected sales for this year gross revenue that is. Um, you know, your trade spend percentage, how much your product costs. I think if you have complicated products like multiple product lines or, you know, you really want to understand which ones are the better, have the better margin and how, you know, how is your sales breaking out between those different product lines. Um, and then, um, you know, the next biggest expense after trade spend and COGS is usually payroll mm-hmm. for most people um, or, or a combination of payroll and contractors. And so understanding what you need now, who, what are those people doing? Um, and so those are like from a numbers perspective, you know, what does that look like? And, and when then, do you need cash right. and how much do you need? I think a question that always comes up is what are you going to use the money for? Yeah, um, like keeping the lights on. Yeah, you're like, I don't know. I'm negative on everything. <laughs> so like I can just put it to, you know, like <laughs> I always find that a everything? funny thing because right. you're like, well. Right. Um, <laughs> well, the way I sort of frame it is like I'm over investing in a team. Yes. You know? I would say put yes. it on people and marketing. Yes. That's what everyone, and trade spend and working capital. I mean, that's what everybody says they're using the money for. And that is what they're using the money for because that's the whole business. Can you break out just because I know we talked about trade spend earlier, but I realized like I thought that trade spend included marketing when I first started oh, but sure. there is a diff, like a sure a so line. so accounting like gap accounting rules um, gap above meaning. the uh, sorry, generally, generally accepted, accepted accounting principles so the way the government wants to see it done um, above the line deductions are basically going to be off invoice discounts um, retailer or distributor chargebacks um, related to anything that reduces the price of the product to a consumer. So that also includes coupons that you might give out, at least the, the cost of that redemption. Um, and then also above the line, trade spend has to be slotting fees um, and spoils and returns. Right. So that is all in your trade spend percentage. percentage exactly. And then below the line. Mm-hmm. Broker fees, retailer advertising, 
um, and pretty much like anything, um, anything else. So right. data, digital marketing, digital marketing, Instagram ads, that yeah. is not trade spend. Yeah, That's because marketing. they don't directly reduce the price or the cost to the consumer and they are not, a nest, they're not like a required cost to do business. Right. So those are kind of like the very generic ways that they, that they define it. Got it. Um, are and there, our goal yeah. is always to keep that number as small as possible because your investor wants to know what's that percentage and then they, you know, then they're happy to see that you spend more money on marketing below the line. Right. Like, you know, those are the, I mean, trade spend and COGS are like the drivers of the business. And so those are the percentages that investors and your board or advisors are always going to ask about. Right. And are there any indicators of success? Like, are there any, are there any red flags that you see? I'm sure. But are there also any like companies where you're like, and this is where you're going to be like, yes, as a matter (laughs) of fact, you No, but like, are there any like indicators of success where you're like, okay, I like the way they're thinking about this. This is probably going to go well. Um, I mean, for me, I always think people who are realistic, mm-hmm. who aren't afraid of any part of their business and are like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like um, proactive and take responsibility for everything mm-hmm. versus this is happening to me. Right. I don't know. That's I like a philosophy on life. Yeah. John. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I feel like, you know, every single thing that is happening in your business is your responsibility. Yep. And it sucks sometimes that yeah. that is the case. And you want it to just, you know, be someone else's yep. fault. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't know, you know, if you get a bunch of trade spend back and you say, stupid and UNFI is charging mm-hmm. me, overcharging me. It's on you. It's on you. Yep. Like, go find out why. Talk to your salespeople, find out what you agreed to, figure out why it's happening, talk to your CFO. Yeah. Like, we'll dig in and we'll figure it out, but it's still, you know, you got to figure it out. It's not happening to you. Right. Like, you're causing it because something that something happened and now you have to fix it. And the whole, that's your whole job is fixing it. Right. right? Yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> um, I want to talk yeah. about one thing that we talked about before we came in here because I had a friend who called me. They have a lot of sales. They do really well in sales, but they do have a big gap between when they get paid and when they pay or the other way Mm -hmm. around. So they do end up having a working capital problem. Um, And, you know, what my understanding is, is that raising money from like by giving equity to fund your your cash flow, your working capital isn't Mm -hmm. a great plan. That if you can fund that in other ways, Mm -hmm. that's ideal instead of giving equity away in the company. But you do have to be at a certain level of sales. Sure. Um, But you said that there is, because I had heard it was like six to eight million in sales before you can get any sort of like a bridge. Mm -hmm. What, What do they call it? Uh, like AR, a line of credit. Right, a right. line of credit mm-hmm. to f- to mm-hmm. basically bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. But you said that it can happen earlier, and I just want to yeah. tell people about it. I mean, so pretty early on in the food industry, Circle Up has a AR financing tool that is particularly easy to use and is generous on the small side. Um, and you have to be at, like, what in sales? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to say maybe a million. Right, okay, um, that's not bad. But um, it also probably depends a lot on where your AR is right now. Right. Um, so if you're having some rapid growth and there's good AR there, then I think they, right. you know, would lend. I, I know they have lent below that, but I don't know. Right. You know, I don't know. I couldn't say um, exactly, but there's no harm in calling and seeing where, what's up with that. Yep. Um, there are a couple other food-focused um, um, AR lenders. Dwight Funding is one of them. Mm-hmm. They you do have to be a little bigger um, in terms of having a regular AR, you know, receivables right. outstanding, you know, to get that line of credit. And it's more complicated. Circle Ups is very simple and straightforward. Right. Um, so when you're small, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I mean, not funding working capital with equity is a really is the is is definitely helpful. I mean, right. if you you know, there's also factoring, which is another. So, but the the important thing to understand is if you are always going to be negative, if you do not run a profit, right? Working capital is a piece of what you need, and once you get the AR financing, it's just it's just changing the timing. It. Yep. It's changing the timing of when you get your cash. It's not giving you more cash. Right. So I think it's just a really important thing to yeah. make sure people understand because a lot of times I hear, you know, oh, I'm just going to get this AR financing and solve right. all my problems. And I'm like, well, you if you're still owe the money, you're still yeah. owe the money. And if your sales aren't growing, AR financing is not going to help you right. because at some point, 
you know, the, the way you get more money from AR financing is that each month you're selling more. Right. <laughs> There's yes. more receivables available to borrow from. So I think we're going to need a second edition. We're coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I think Great. you're coming back Part because <laughs> we haven't even touched valuations. And I really want to have that discussion okay. because all of this ties into it, right? Because if the, if the net net of the conversation is essentially, unless you are self-funding or you have a unicorn product that is going to be profitable mm -hmm. immediately, you do need outside money. Mm -hmm. If you need outside money, you have to get it probably from investors, yes, right? Because banks aren't in the business of doing this. If you're doing it, if you're getting money from investors, then you're going to need to figure out how to value that investment and what that equity is worth. Mm -hmm. And that is a whole other discussion. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. So we'll as we're next. leaving, I just want to know the most fun you've had, the the moment, the any moment in this whole journey of yours where you've been like, yay, I'm so happy I do this. I'm so proud of myself or my team or whatever, whoever. It can be a personal moment. It can be a business moment. All right. Um, I have a couple. You have one, to choose one. Oh. Sorry, Gosh. Matt is making... Okay, sorry. Money. All right. Um, so we work in a WeWork office and we started in a two-person where we put we crammed three people in a two-person WeWork because that's what we right. could afford. Um, so from Relish Food Project, from my point of view, from growing my own business, it was when we moved to the 10-person office with a window. Yeah. The, <laughs> the window. The window was big. The Huge. window has like... It was, a, it was like it was a thing in my mind that meant that we had gotten yeah. to a place that was something. Well, you have no shortage of companies that are in demand of your services. I think you just have a shortage of time and bandwidth, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I know 15 people. You almost didn't take me, I heard, <laughs> no. but you did. I know. Yay. I know. We were suckers. Um, Lucky me. You know, I'm going to just say we love women entrepreneurs. Not that we don't love all entrepreneurs, but we do have a lot. We are, we've been super lucky to attract a lot of women entrepreneurs and it's like, it makes the business. It's another happy moment. Yeah. Well, um, I'm thrilled you were here. Thank you. I do think you're going to have to come back okay. in the summer this and we're going to have to fun. talk more about these accounting practices. If people have questions, don't, don't email Dawn because she can't <laughs> answer them. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, DM me on Instagram at Haven's Kitchen. Um, if, if people do want to reach out, it's relishfoodproject.com. Yep. Um, thank you so much for coming. We are going to be hosting a panel discussion on all of this stuff on April 1st. I will be giving more details in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I think especially for women, I don't know, it's weird talking about money. And I really think we need to be talking more about money. So cool. thanks for coming. Thanks, Allie. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fair, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>